Well, in the passage from Mark's Gospel we read earlier, uh, we can see three distinct attitudes uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Two wrong and one right. One is perhaps mistaken, well, it's definitely mistaken, but it may be unintentionally mistaken. One is deliberately hostile, and one is the view that Jesus himself endorses. And all these views have consequences, because what we think, how we view the Lord Jesus Christ, has immense and eternal consequences for all of us. These verses give us a warning, but they also give us an encouragement. And I would say that all the three attitudes, all the three views that we see here, have equivalents today. And so, as we go along, I want us to be thinking this morning, which position is yours? Whose side are you really on? What is your attitude to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, this episode comes relatively early on in the uh, public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, that three-year period from the age of about 30 to 33, where he was out at work. And already amazing things have happened, jaw-dropping miracles that the Lord Jesus has done. Already there's been teaching that has astonished people with its clarity, with its authority. Already the Lord Jesus Christ has called individuals to follow him, not just to form an audience, but to commit their lives to him and to obey him. Most people are not at that stage at this point. For them, Jesus perhaps is, is a thing, he's a phenomenon, he's a magnet for the crowds. But certainly, he's hard to ignore. Everybody wants to see him. Everybody wants to know what's going on and perhaps figure out who this is that is on the scene. Now, we might think, well, there's nothing to dislike here, is there? It's all good, isn't it? The words of Jesus, the works of Jesus, all good. And it's clear that he's no con artist, uh, because people then, no doubt, were no more or less uh, credulous or gullible or sceptical and cynical than they are today. There was a mix of people, there were huge crowds, certainly enough for anybody to sniff out a fraud, something that wasn't quite as it seemed. And you know, there were never such accusations against the Lord Jesus Christ, because it was clear that his miracles were real. Sick people of all sorts were healed. Those who were possessed by evil spirits, they were rescued and they were restored. And so there was never any doubt. Something real, something powerful, something unusual was happening. And these were good works that were happening. And yet, not everyone was pleased with what was going on. Right from early days, the Lord Jesus Christ was a controversial figure. And we've got to remember that. He always was, ever since he always has been, and he still is today. So if we're going to be serious about following the Lord Jesus Christ, we must expect that. We must take that into account, that there will be opposition, 
there will be a misunderstanding. And sometimes it even comes from those who would pay lip service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it even comes from those who seem to be the most religious and the most devout. So let's not be surprised by that. And let's not be put off by that in our time. But here there are some surprising sources for the, uh, the different reactions uh, that Jesus receives. And the first is in verses 20 to 21. And here we've got his own people. And we see the danger of despising the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy to skip over these couple of verses, but I want to uh, stay with them for a moment. We're told the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. This is one response to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's a mistaken response, but it's actually a dangerous response. It comes from his own people. That's what the translation we've been reading from says. Others Uh, say, his friends or his family. Really, it could be any of those. It's simply people who already know him, people perhaps who lived in the area where he grew up. This takes place uh, near Lake Galilee, not far from Nazareth. And we know Israel wasn't a huge country at that time, so there would have been plenty of people about who would have known him, perhaps known him quite well. And as they come on the scene, there's a a bit of a scrum around Jesus. Crowds of people pressing in. And he's getting no rest. He barely has time to sit down and have anything to eat. And of course, unlike your modern celebrity, he doesn't have a car waiting or even a helicopter to whisk him away off the scene. He doesn't have burly security officers standing around him to uh, restrict access to him. Now, it's kind of free-for-all. It's a bit of a melee. And there you've got some people who are serious about hearing him and listening to him. There'll be other people who are wanting to be healed, who have brought friends or family with them for him to heal them. And then there'll be many others who are just curious, thinking, you know, what's going on? There's something worth seeing here. And his own people, these who perhaps know him at least a little, They're concerned about him. They want to grab him and take him out of the situation. And their comment is this. He's out of his mind. They look at the scene and they think, this is chaos. This is madness. This is getting out of hand. Why does he want this to happen? What's he thinking? They want to inject a dose of normality, as they would see it. Now, you can say this view is understandable. Uh, I don't think they had a bad intention. But these people, at the very least, were showing disrespect to the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems that they had no awareness of who he is and what he came to do. Their view, in reality, was a small-minded view, a view that discounted the spiritual dimension to what was going on. And so 
they were guilty of despising Jesus, of not seeing him in the true light for who he was. And as I said, that is dangerous. Their standpoint has its counterpart today, I would say. I would frame it like this. There are plenty of people about, maybe you're one of them, and they would see themselves as down-to-earth, sensible people, you know, have their feet on the ground rather than their head in the clouds. And perhaps they've got no truck with fancy religious ideas. No problem with religion in its place, maybe as a private thing or, you know, something that forms a weekly kind of ritual, but nothing too extreme. Don't want it to squeeze out all the important things of life, you know, like the shopping and the TV and the sport and all the rest of it. Lots going on in life. So maybe yes to religion, but not too far, all within its bounds. Is that a reasonable view to hold? Well, these people, their view was understandable, but it was not reasonable as concerned the Lord Jesus Christ. They were patronising him. His work was far greater than they imagined. You see, Jesus wasn't, if you like, just a miracle worker. He wasn't someone who could switch on his power to perform. He wasn't just a teacher who would give a set-piece lecture and then clock off for the day. No, the Lord Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, And he was showing his divine power. God's grace breaking into the lives of needy people. Sinners being called to repentance. Wrecked lives being restored. And so what was going on was not out of control. It wasn't under their control. But Jesus knew what was happening. And the reality of it that sense of something greater, something bigger than the ordinary, perhaps made these people uncomfortable. They'd prefer a bit of peace and quiet, normal life, ordinary things. And so, rather than acknowledge the wonderful things that were happening, they'd rather dismiss it and say, well, this is just too much. He's out of his mind. He's not fitting in the categories that we're expecting. This has gone too far. Now, you must not make the same mistake because to to despise the Son of God is dangerous. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't offer you a sanitised form of religion, something that will just fill a gap in your schedule on Sunday mornings or make you feel good. The Bible tells us that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he doesn't save sinners by giving us moral lessons or promoting our well-being. If these people thought things were going too far because Jesus was busy with crowds around him, what would they think when they see him hanging on a cross, dying in agony? Well, that's extreme, if anything's extreme, isn't it? But that was what he came to do. To pay for our sins by enduring his father's anger. To rescue those who would put their trust in him. To transform lives and hearts just as truly, just as powerfully as the healing of the blind 
and the casting out of the evil spirit. Jesus came to save, to change, to do mighty work. All the world needs to hear of him. They did then, and we do now. So don't dismiss the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't dismiss the gospel as madness or folly or extreme. That's always been a temptation. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, we preach Christ to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Lord Jesus Christ brings us the only way to have a relationship with God, the only way for our sins to be pardoned, the only way for us to be sure of heaven. So don't dismiss him for yourself. Don't discourage others. And don't let others discourage you. So that was the first response to Jesus. And it was from his own people. And they were despising him. Then the second response. This comes from the scribes. And here we see the sin of slandering Jesus. And this forms the the biggest part of the verses that we read. For if the error of his own people was perhaps unintentional, the error of these scribes, these religious leaders, was just all too intentional. They'd already appeared in the previous chapter, Mark chapter 2, and they would question and challenge what Jesus was doing. But here they go one step further. We're told they travel up from Jerusalem uh, to Galilee specifically to oppose Jesus, to spread lies and make what they hope will be a damaging accusation. Well, who were these people? The scribes, they were religious experts, those who were trained and taught in, in God's law, the Old Testament of our Bible. So they were people who acknowledged spiritual reality. They believed in God. They also believed in the devil, the enemy of God, the enemy of souls, the one who brought sin into the world, a fallen angel, a powerful being who has other fallen angels in league with him. Now, as we read the New Testament, it does seem that in those days, the time of Jesus there was a kind of upsurging in activity by evil spirits who were actively seeking to oppose the Lord Jesus Christ, obstruct his path, testing his power. And men and women were their victims. They were the kind of collateral damage. Now, people then were not gullible. They, uh, they knew the difference between mental illness and that kind of activity. So they were aware that there was an evil power active in this world. And they knew, of course, from the history of their nation, that God is at work in this world too, and is more powerful than the devil. So those basic facts, they knew, and they had right. And in that sense, perhaps they're more advanced than many people today who uh, treat God as if he's just a remote, distant being and would even deny the existence of the devil. They knew that. But now here, they have heard and seen and witnessed 
that Jesus has power greater than that of evil spirits. He's able to set people free from such forces. Tremendous things have been happening, and they can't deny it. But they don't want Jesus. They don't like him. And so, what desperate cunning they have, what what lengths they resort to, to make what is a terrible accusation, even just to repeat it. They say, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So they're saying, they're claiming that Jesus is under the influence of Satan, and it's by Satan's working that he's doing these great things. Now what they say is ludicrous, and Jesus makes that clear. The work of the Lord Jesus was good, only good. Those evil spirits were being unwillingly driven out. There was a complete change, a change for the better in those who were set free. The influence of evil was being curtailed. It was being restrained. And so it was utter nonsense to say that the power conquering evil was the same power as the evil itself. What would be the point in that? Why would Satan be opposing himself? No, the evidence was, Jesus says, that the strong man has been bound. The evidence was that someone greater than Satan was here, someone who had power over him, someone who could defeat him. How patient the Lord Jesus is here when he's facing such a cruel charge against him. He explains it's ludicrous, it's nonsense. He doesn't direct his fire harshly at these scribes, but he does give them a very solemn warning. He says that they are in grave danger of sinning in a way that will never be forgiven. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked uh, by this, but I just want to reference it in this context to these men and perhaps take some learnings for us. Can you see what a terrible position they'd put themselves in? They could see evidence of good work, of God at work. Those miracles of Jesus, they were proof of who he is. But they're so twisted, they're so determined to reject him, that they're trying to use them, those miracles, as proof of evil. And so think about it. If they take that line, what is ever going to convince them? The more good that Jesus does, the more powerful his works, the more they're going to say that that's Satan at work. So if they stay in that mode of thinking, nothing will persuade them. They will never believe on him. They are slandering him. They are slandering the Holy Spirit, the one who is working through him. They are calling the greatest of good evil. They're flipping things on their head. 
And Jesus gives them a solemn warning. He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. I wonder if those words frighten you at all. You know, I think they should do. Never to be forgiven. Forever to be condemned by God. That is a fearful state to be in. To leave this life estranged from God, taking with you your sinful record, not forgiven, not dealt with, to meet God in your guilt with no one to represent you, no one to stand with you, that will be a dreadful end, leading only on to the horrors of hell. And these clever religious experts who thought themselves superior to others, who looked down on others, who prided themselves on how much they knew of the scriptures, these people who felt threatened by Jesus and feared his popularity and were prepared to say anything to get at him, they were putting themselves at grave risk. They knew so much, and yet they were determined not to believe, not to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what about us and what about you? What happens when we're confronted with the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his truth and his work. Do you dare to reject it and oppose it? Do you dare to argue against what he stands for? Now, in today's society, uh, there are many who are willing to say that good is evil and that evil is good, that God's moral law, that his created order that this book that he's given us is wrong. And that is foolish. The idea that 21st century Westerners have discovered wisdom that's eluded all other ages, as if people today know better than their maker, it's foolish. Now, okay, that may not be you. All I'd say is don't be intimidated by other people who will um, pressure you to accept what's wrong and to change your thinking, and to flip upside down everything the Bible teaches. But that was the one element of where these scribes went wrong. They were calling good evil. But the other element, the reason they were doing it, was because they would not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a host of different ways, you can be guilty of refusing to believe in God's Son, of twisting the evidence of what he's done. You can see that these people didn't want to believe. It, their, their power, their influence was what they wanted to keep, and they didn't like Jesus being more popular than them. They didn't like the emptiness of their teaching being exposed, because they were hypocrites, and they didn't like that being shown up. And over the centuries, there's been many people like that, and maybe it's an instinctive feeling. We don't like our sin being exposed. Maybe there's wrong in your life and you know it's wrong and yet you don't want to change. Maybe you prefer to stay in charge of your life and have the final say 
Maybe you're afraid of a power that is greater than anything you've ever known. And instead of surrendering and repenting of your wrong and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been resisting and opposing and rejecting. Well, Jesus tells us here, beware. If, like these scribes, you choose to resist what is good and what you know is good, what's ever going to change your mind? Faced with the clearest evidence, they chose a completely unlikely explanation in order to avoid facing up to reality. Beware of putting yourself in a position where you refuse to believe. The Bible suggests to us that there can come a point of no return so that a person will never have forgiveness, will be subject to eternal condemnation. Don't go there. It doesn't bear thinking about. Don't go the way of these scribes. But I want to finish last of all with the the group who had it right on that day. And uh, this group, uh, the words Jesus spoke about them are the words uh, that we've had on the screen. This is when Jesus' relatives uh, call for him, his, his mother and his brothers. And Jesus looks round at those who are about him and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So these are those who do God's will. And here we see the blessing of belonging. Lord Jesus Christ is meaning no disrespect to his uh, relatives, to Mary and, uh, and the others. But really he's emphasising the wonderful relationship that we can enter into if we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking about these true disciples who are sticking with him, who really want to hear and obey him. They're not passive. They're not just bystanders. They're coming to know him, to trust him, to obey him. And in doing so, they're aligning themselves with the will of God, the will of God the Father. We know that Jesus and the Father are one. And uh, elsewhere in John chapter 6, Jesus speaks about his father's will. He says there, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I shall lose nothing, but shall raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Doing God's will, it begins with believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God's will, God's revealed will, is that sinners like us, people who don't deserve any good from God, should place our trust in his son as our saviour. And what happens if we do? Well, we don't become mere names on a list. We become members of a family. 
We have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with his Father. We belong. We start to develop a family likeness. Our character, our desires, our whole lives begin to be shaped by the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the will of God, as we want to be like him and to please him. We find that we have brothers and sisters in the family, other Christians who can help us and whom we can help. And above all, we have the Lord Jesus Christ, if you like, as our elder brother, one who is close to us, one who cares about us, one who's prepared a path ahead for us. We belong. And the promise is that those who trust in Christ, the will of the Father is that they should be raised at the last day and have eternal life and have an entrance into that eternal home, the home of God, the home of Christ, the family home that can be our home. Now this is available for anybody and everybody here today. Actually, that solemn warning to the scribes contains some encouraging words because the first part, before it speaks about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, says this, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. So Jesus is clear that if we will but trust in him and come to him for salvation, whatever we may have done, however our lives may have been, we can be forgiven. We can begin to be those who do God's will and form part of his family. These proud, hard-hearted scribes rejected him, but many ordinary people believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. All sorts. We know there were some disreputable characters. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were hearing of Matthew or Levi, the tax collector who was despised by, uh, by the scribes and Pharisees. There were some who had degraded lives. There were those um, out of whom the Lord had cast evil spirits. Their lives had been shameful and uh, horrible. And yet the Lord had saved them and they formed part of his family. And then there were perhaps the more average people, those like Peter and James and John. And many, many more about whom we know nothing. But each one, counted by the Lord Jesus Christ as a brother or sister, one of his family, one who does his father's will. That is the privilege and the blessing that is open to everybody who will put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, what is your response to the Lord Jesus? Whose side are you really on? Good was being done when Jesus was here on earth. The greatest possible good. Some discounted it some pretended it was evil but some came to christ and put their trust in him our prayer my prayer is that each one of us this morning might recognize christ for who he is not as just a figure to be admired a figure to be curious about but as the savior the one to entrust your life to the one to obey the one who can be your friend and your saviour forever, for this life and for eternity. May God bless all of us and lead us to Christ. Amen.